Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be worshiping with you. So good to be back. It's actually been exactly five years since the last time I've been on this stage to be able to share God's word with you, and it's so good to be here. Welcome also our other campuses online and also Eastside. Hello, friends over there and Mayfair Road and also Sherman Park as well. So it is good to be here. Uh, I always wondered what it would be like uh, to kind of come back, and to be honestly, it's surreal. And uh, Pastor Dave gave me a call earlier this year, and he said, hey, we're doing this new series, and uh, we're going to spend three weeks in Acts and we want to ask if you'd be willing to come back and to share God's word. And I said, oh my goodness, absolutely. I'm honored to do so. And so I got working on my sermons right away. And I just found out recently I'm only here for one week, not all three. Um, so you're going to get all three sermons I prepared in this next bit of time. Okay, I'm just kidding. And for those of you that are new, I have two jokes every time. That was the first one. So wait for the next. But honestly, it is, it's really good to be here. And uh, I understand that there are a number of you that don't know uh, who I am, don't even know my name, and that's okay, because part of our time today, uh, I'm actually going to share some of the story of Epicos, and not because I want to just share stories about myself, uh, but instead it's actually tied to what we're learning in Scripture right now in this series going through the book of Acts, and uh, specifically going through this middle section, Acts chapter 14, uh, we're going to see how uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and some of the other apostles are planting uh, churches uh, throughout uh, the region. Um, so what I want you to do, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 13 before we get into the main thrust here. Uh, Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 2, says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So if you were here last week, what you may remember is Pastor Dave talked about the first kind of 12 chapters where the church just started. This is right after Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead. You know, they waited in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church started but then because of persecution, the church was kind of scattered a bit, and they kind of collected in Antioch. And in Antioch, uh, this group of people, they were, they were worshiping the Lord, so I love this. They were fasting, and then it says the Holy Spirit, you know, prompted them to send out two of their leaders, Paul and Barnabas, and uh, they were to be missionaries, and essentially they were commissioned. Now, if you've spent any time uh, at Epicos, while I was here, you've probably heard me say this before, but even if not, and you've you know, heard other pastors, you've probably heard people say, and I have said this, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a missionary. Have you ever heard that before? Ever heard me say that before? Yes. And I think that that's great. It's cute, to be honest, but I'm going to up the ante a little bit here this morning, and that is this. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a church planter. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a church planter. I'm not saying that if you're a follower of Christ, you're the lead church planter like Paul and Barnabas, but all of us as followers of Christ are involved in church planting. See, we like to use 
you know, uh, Acts 13 and even, you know, throughout 14, 15, 16, we talk about them on their missionary journey. So the Apostle Paul has three missionary journeys. But understand what the mission is. So the first part of the mission is that they're proclaiming the gospel. They're proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But the ultimate goal is that after there's the proclamation of the gospel, that then the gathering of believers comes and roots down and establishes a church, a church plant, if you will. Uh, I was first called uh, to church planting uh, when I was 19 years old. Uh, I was in college, and I was at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, uh, also known as, as the Harvard of the Midwest, um, uh, or to others, UW Sloshkosh, depending kind of on your experience. Uh, I was in the UW Sloshkosh category um, until the Lord really rescued me, and, and really rescued me from uh, just a, a life of, you know, debauchery and just self-absorption, and uh, I got involved with crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, a campus ministry, and at the same time I got involved uh, with a, a church plant uh, that was also involved in planting other churches. And God used that um, as a really key formation time in my life and gave me a specific call not only just to full-time ministries but specifically uh, to church planting. So I finished up school there I met Emily, my wife, during that time, and, and we got married after, after college, and then I moved to Minneapolis-St. Paul and went to Bethel Seminary, uh, spent some years there kind of preparing, and then in 2004, we moved to the east side of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, we were a pioneer plant, meaning that we weren't, you know, a hive off of another church, or weren't, weren't a group of people that were waiting for us to arrive to kind of start a church. It was really just us and a few other people uh, from, from college that uh, I invited to be part of this as well. And I had taken some classes in church planting. There was a few books out at that time, how to, how to Plant a Church, but I had a pretty sophisticated strategy, and that was just to go to coffee shops, open up my Bible, and just wait for anyone to have eye contact with me. <laughs> and if you had eye contact with me, we were going to have a conversation about Jesus and maybe eventually have a conversation about planting a church. And I, I don't know how well it worked, how many people I can kind of trace back, but I do know that over some months period of time, maybe a month, month and a half, we had enough people to gather together to be a small group uh, in our living room. And uh, we decided uh, to go through um, the book of Romans together. And uh, we had five guys that were a part of that. And what was really unique and kind of special is that there were believers, a few believers, uh, but uh, believers were inviting their non-believing friends. And I'll never forget that one of these non-believers that was a part of our small group came for the first time and he pulled me aside afterwards and uh, he said, I don't, I, I don't think I can come back. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, what did I say? What did someone else say? Or do, do they just not believe? He said, well, t tell me what, what's going on. He's like, well, I, I'm just never going to be able to catch up with your book club, okay? He, he understood that you read the Bible, Genesis, all the way through Romans. He's like, I'm just never going to get there. And it was at that moment I, I, I realized that we are accomplishing exactly what we set out to do. We, we existed to be able to share the message of Jesus with those who didn't have a relationship with God. And so this small group, I remember, 
when we hit 10 people and I thought that revival had broken out in the Milwaukee metro area. I was convinced of it. And you have to understand that church planners were a little disconnected from reality sometimes. We just view things a little bit differently. And so remember the timeline. This is January of 2004 that we, we move, you know, kind of on site. And, um, and uh, eventually we went from, from one small group to two and then uh, uh, two to three and three to four. So four small groups. Uh, some knew that we eventually, you know, were, were planning to become part of a church. Others were just there because they were learning about Jesus. They, they were coming to these small groups because they were experiencing life change. Um, some were coming just because of community. Uh, they, they had friends, and so they were still exploring what it meant to be, a, you know, a follower of Jesus. And uh, towards the end of 2004, uh, we decided, like, hey, let's pull this together and uh, let's, you know, kind of formally launch as a church. So we found, uh, you know, Westminster Presbyterian Church, which is now the east side location. If you've been there, beautiful stained glass and everything. And, and so January of 2005, we officially launched the church. And uh, we had 125 people show up, and it was just amazing. Now, I, I must tell you that when you launch a church, I mean, that's not how many people are really involved in your church. I mean, you invite family, you invite friends. I mean, if you've got to pay people to come off the street to just sit in the seats, to feel legitimate, whatever it takes, you do that. But we had 125 people, and it was great. There was excitement. There was momentum that was happening. And I was really excited because, okay, that's January, and now just a in a couple of months was Easter. And if you know anything about church culture, you know that Christmas and Easter are when churches have their highest attendance. And so I was so excited that we were going to break into new numerical territory and things were just going to just take off. And so we hit Easter of, you know, 2005 and we had 35 people show up, you know. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, just discouraged. Here I had this expectation that all this awesome things were going to happen and um, I went home that night, and Emily didn't tell me this till a couple years later, but she said that she was planning on telling me that night, hey, you, you, you've given it a really good try, but it's time to get a real job. <laughs> so th thanks for the encouragement, right? I was discouraged. There's no doubt about that. I was discouraged. Uh, but I knew in my heart of hearts that God had more for our church community. And so we continued to press on. We continued to meet in small groups. We continued to worship together. We, uh, you know, continued to, um, you know, hear from God's word, continued to see transformed lives. And if you know a bit about the story, you know, eventually we multiplied services at that east side location. Eventually we were able to, to purchase that building. Uh, eventually we, we launched out in, into West Allis. All this time we were also a part of other church plants locally here in Milwaukee, but even regionally as well. And so there's this long history of multiplication and seeing how God uses and, and starts something kind of from nothing. So this is what I want us to do today. Is we're going to look at chapter 14, which is just a story, a small snippet of one of the church plans in the book of Acts. And before we dive in, I'll, I'll say this, because this is important. Pastor Dave last week, he talked about the book of Acts and said it is a description, not a prescription. So there's scripture in the New Testament that's prescription. Many of 
the letters of the Apostle Paul, their prescription. In other words, hey, if you believe in God, you must do this. Or you believe in Jesus, do not do this. So it's, it's prescribed, very clear. Where Acts is not that. It's a description. It's, it's a historical account. So we have to be careful to say, okay, well, this happened in Acts, so we have to do it this way. At the same time, there are things, there are principles that we can learn and observe, and that's what we're going to do today, and say, what of those can we apply to our own lives? So open your Bibles up. We're going to start in uh, 14, verse 1, and we're going to break, break you know, uh, this, our passage up into four. We'll make four different observations. So verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Church planters followed Jesus' instructions. Okay, church planters follow Jesus' instructions. Uh, another translation puts it this way. Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. I love this translation um, and ones that are, are really close to this because what it's identifying is that there was a pattern in their church planting strategy. You'll read this not only in Acts 14, but in almost all of the churches that they plant throughout the region, they go to the Jewish synagogue first. And you might think, well, they did that. That's a great strategy. But I'm telling you, the reason they did that is because this is how Jesus instructed them to. So this is, this is kind of like a Jesus juke, right? You know what a Jesus juke is where you just kind of like, well, if Jesus did it, you know, it's good enough for him, good enough for me type of thing. But it's more than a Jesus juke. Jesus really did instruct this way. Look, look, look with me in Matthew chapter 10. This is when Jesus is first sending out the 12. And he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles... And enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go first, where? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, go to the Jewish people first, and as you do, um, proclaim, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus instructed, said, hey, go, go to the lost people of Israel first. And, uh, and that's exactly what they did. And they do it here in Acts chapter 14. It says that they go to the Jewish synagogue. So now as we begin to kind of put that into application, you may be saying, so what are you telling me? You said that we're involved in church planting. Does that mean after service or next week I need to go to the Jewish synagogue? No. What I'm saying is identify the pattern, but identify the principle behind the pattern. And here's what the principle is. Jesus was instructing them to go to people that were already curious about God. Jesus was saying, I want you to go to those that are spiritually curious, that there is a hunger to know and to have a relationship with God. And the synagogue was exactly that place. There were people who already knew about God. They knew the history. They knew the Old Testament scripture but they were missing that kind of final element of the grace of Jesus. They, they, they didn't know yet who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them. The reason why I think that this principle is so important for us as church planters is because oftentimes as Christians we think, you know, i got to find the person that is most hostile towards God. And, and I'm going to learn all of this stuff and I'm going to debate them and I'm going to twist their arm. I'm going to hit them over the head with the Bible and I am going to convince them 
that they need God. Now, granted, maybe there's a very select few that are really called to do that, but I think that for the majority of us, we can look at this principle of finding the spiritually curious and going to them first. And it could be easy that I just kind of send you home and you're supposed to you know, come up with a list of 15 to 20 people that you consider spiritual curious, but I don't want to do that this morning. Not at all. Instead, I want you to think of one person. One person. Even right now, God could be bringing to mind that one person that's coming to the top of your head. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a, it's a family member or a friend or even a coworker. And, and there's something that you sense in which they are spiritually curious. Maybe it's questions they've asked you. Maybe it's little, you know, verses or little sayings that they're, you know, posting on their cube. Whatever it is, that there's probably one person that God would bring to mind. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to commit to praying for them. I didn't say, hey, find that one person. And, you know, today, on Monday, you're going to call them. And Tuesday, you're going to meet with them. You're going to walk them through the gospel and lead them to Jesus. Now, maybe that'll happen for some of you. But that's not what I'm asking. Commit to praying for them. And I believe that as we read in Acts, as people are led by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's going to open up an opportunity for you to have a spiritual conversation with them. It might start very small, very simple. Maybe you just even share, like, um, you know, I, I invite you to come to church with me. Or tell me, is there anything I can pray for you that's going on in your life? Uh, maybe you're like, hey, I just heard of this you know, I had, I was at church this week. It was a powerful sermon, powerful sermon. That's number two. That's it. That's all you got. Whatever it is, whatever it is, that God would open up some of those spiritual conversations for you. And you'll be amazed. I think that you'll see some of the same things that were happening in the book of Acts, because as they went to this place, what does it say? It says that there was a great number of both Jews and Greeks that believed. All right, pick your Bibles back up. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Church planters stand up against opposition. Church planters stand up against opposition. I mean, this is, you're going to see this throughout the entire book of Acts, all, almost every single time they go. They go, a lot of times there's some initial success, right? People say yes to Jesus. Lives are transformed. Woohoo! there's energy, there's momentum. And then what happens? Boom, opposition, roadblock. Uh, again, Jesus warned of this. Jesus said this in the Gospels. Do you remember this? That Jesus was like, hey, I just want you to know, if you come and follow after me, um, they're going to persecute you. And Jesus said, uh, they're going to persecute you because they per persecuted me. And as a matter of fact, they're persecuting not you, they're persecuting me, and they're persecuting my Father who sent me. So I just want you to know, it is going to happen. And that is exactly what we read here. There is opposition that happens as you are involved in church planting. Now, what I told you that in, in college I had... Some friends, one of those friends was Pastor Michael Morgan, your executive pastor here. And uh, we, um, you know, uh, were friends in college. He, he came with to the Twin Cities when we were there, and he was, 
he was a sucker enough to move to Milwaukee and be part of that early uh, small group and that early kind of church planting team. Uh, but when we were still in the Twin Cities, before there was even a name of the church or anything like that, we were praying and we were asking, God, would you give us a verse? And many of you have heard this story before. Would you give us a verse that would help to just even guide us as a church? And what the Lord led us to is 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. To the other, the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for such things? I just love this verse. Did you capture that? What it's saying is that as we share the gospel with people, um, we are the aroma of Christ. But that same gospel message to, to some are, is, is going to be this sweet aroma. It's a beautiful scent. It's a beautiful fragrance. And that same message to someone else is going to be the very stench of death. Same message, delivered in the same way, going to be received. You can't have control over how it's going to be received, but you can at least just be prepared for that. Okay, so as you're involved in church planning, you're praying for that one person. You're getting in spiritual conversations. There's going to be some, as you share with them, it's going to be the life-saving message of Jesus, and they just can't wait to hear it, and they want to know more. And there's going to be others that say, I want nothing to do with this. Well, what happens when you end up having opposition? Well, look what they do. Look at their response. It says, so they remain there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. I love this. They, they speak boldly for the Lord. Now, there's something important here, though. There's a difference in speaking boldly and speaking loudly. Even I get kind of confused with this sometimes, especially as a parent. My kids aren't listening. I'm thinking, oh, they, they can't hear me. I'll just turn the volume up a little bit until finally Emily and my daughters are like, why are you shouting? It's like, because you're not listening to me. I wouldn't have to shout if you would just listen to me. And we can kind of laugh at that or, you know, kind of, you know, feel like, yeah, that's my story as well, too. Um, but we often do the same thing as followers of Christ. We think, oh, well, if someone isn't believing or there's some sort of opposition, I just need to turn up the volume. Or if I'm making a post on social media, I just need to use all caps and lots of exclamation points because then people will believe me in what I'm saying. But what does it mean to speak boldly? Um, to speak boldly means sticking exactly with Scripture. You ever wondered, like, I wonder what the Apostle Paul's sermons were like? What, what, was, what, was, what, was, what was his content like? Uh, do you know that we have some of them recorded? Uh, I don't want you to do it right now, but if you, this week, flip back just one chapter, uh, in chapter 13, you're going to see is actually recorded there. Hey, here's, here's Paul's sermon, and this is what he does. He just walks you and says, hey, this was God's relationship with humanity. Here's where you went astray, and here's God's solution. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that you might have forgiveness and everlasting life, not because of your good works, but because of the good grace of Jesus. Boldly just proclaims this is what truth is. It's one of the things that 
delights me again, too, just of the story of Epicos is just maintaining that boldness and saying, well, we're going to stick to the, to the truth. Yeah, there might be some principles, there might be some strategies. We're excited about what God's doing and how he's doing it, but ultimately we're just speaking boldly and proclaiming uh, the gospel of Christ. All right, moving right along, the second part of that verse, of verse 3, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done with their hands. I broke verse uh, 3 into 2, but understand how connected they are. So in the first, their response to opposition was to speak boldly, and then number 2, it says that they bore witness to the word of his grace, you know, granting signs and wonders. So if you're able to connect those two, the one is the word and the proclamation. The other second half of it is the action, word and action. This demonstration of God's word, which that's, that's our, our point that you want to write down. Church planters demonstrate the grace of Jesus. So word and action, they spoke boldly, but then they demonstrated it um, through these signs and wonders, having both. And if you read through Acts, you're going to see the description of many of these signs and wonders. I mean, phenomenal, crazy things. People that were blind that were able to see. People that were paralyzed and, and, and were able to walk. Those things that were happening even in nature that scientists could not explain. They can't explain it even to this day. They were supernatural signs and wonders that were happening. And why were they were happening? Were to confirm the word of his grace. It was to confirm the message of Jesus. And I absolutely believe that we serve an all-powerful, all-sovereign God that can still work in any way and still do all of the same supernatural things that happened in the Old Testament and in the New Testament can happen today. But I also recognize that God doesn't always work in the same ways and in different time periods. And maybe we don't see some of those things to the same degree that they happened back then. But I would like to make an argument to you that there is still a place of four signs and wonders to be um, uh, used and demonstrated within the church. And there's some that I think that we overlook that are right within our grasp and within our fingertips. So I want to offer even just three of them to you. One is the sign and wonder of a transformed life. The sign and wonder of a transformed life. And I know that some of you are here and you're like, well, that's not me. Like, I, uh, you know, my, my life is a wreck right now. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some of you there's still coming off a bender from last night and you showed up here at church or you're, you're struggling with addictions or you got all sorts of baggage or junk or whatever. Can I tell you something? You are exactly where God wants you to be. Right now, right now, God could be tapping you to be his next miracle. You could be the next sign and wonder in the church that confirms supernaturally that God exists. The sign and wonder of a transformed life. There's a sign and wonder of generosity. I, I believe completely 
that um, right now there's opportunity how we even treat one another. You read about this in Acts chapter 2. The, the church was operating in extreme generosity, how they shared with one another. Just amazing things that were going on. And I'll tell you what, the outside world, when they see that, they go, that, that's different than out here where everyone's trying to just get ahead and do things for themselves. The outside world is looking in in the church has the opportunity to live out the sign and wonder of generosity. In this third one, the sign and wonder, and this may be the most difficult one, the sign and wonder of forgiveness. The sign and wonder of forgiveness. Here, here's what I mean by that. I know that some of you have been hurt and hurt badly. You may be walking around with wounds, um, maybe walking around even with bitterness, and I don't know your situations, um, but I do know that there's lots of people in this world at some point or another where you have been hurt by someone. And, and it feels like someone stabbed you in the back and the cut runs deep. And I'll tell you what, what makes it even harder is when it's from a friend. What makes it even harder is when it's a friend, maybe even from the body of Christ. Or maybe it's a family or whatever. It, it's something that hurts and stings. And you're like, Danny, I can't forgive. You don't understand. It hurts too much. I've tried. I can't forgive. You're right about two things. I don't understand because I'm not in your shoes. And number two, I, I agree. You cannot forgive on your own. I believe that true forgiveness only happens supernaturally when we understand the extreme grace and forgiveness that has been offered to us. This is even what Scripture says. We cannot truly forgive until we understand and live the forgiveness of Jesus in our own lives. And so there may be some of you here today where there's going to be a supernatural sign and wonder where you have the ability to forgive someone that has, has uh, hurt you. All right, our last one is we're kind of wrapping up here, verses um, 14, 4 through 7. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. All right, so if you were paying attention as I read that, there's something that's maybe unique that stuck out to you. It says that they fled. And you might be like, wait, that seems like a contradiction. You just said that, you know, they faced opposition, but they stayed there for some time. They kind of stood their ground. Um, but here's what I, I want to tell you. It's, it's not a contradiction. Understand that um, the early church was always dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. And, and it forces them, instead of just being like, yes, you should do this, don't do this. They were always sent, do we stay here? Do we go um, who should be part of which missions team? Who's going to be, uh, you know, going on the next missionary journey? Who's going to be a part of this church? Who's going to be out? They were always relying on God's Holy Spirit. So you can write down, if you're taking notes, church planters pivot to maximize kingdom impact. Church planters pivot to maximize kingdom impact. I know that pivot is a word that way, was way overused uh, during uh, during the pandemic and, and COVID stuff, but it's true here because notice what happens is that they changed location, but they didn't change their mission. They changed location, but they didn't change their mission. So they, they switched and they said, okay, 
you know, we're sensing that God's calling us to move on. They probably had enough roots that went down. It was stable enough. And what they did is then, you know, uh, uh, went on to the next city. And what does it say? What does verse 7 say? They continued to preach the gospel. So they didn't, they didn't cower down. They just switched location where they were able to do that. And so there's this continued mission no matter what happens. Things going well, opposition. Um, they continue to see the multiplication of disciples. They see the multiplication of, of churches uh, uh, happening throughout all of this time. Uh, often people will ask me, and I had dinner last night with Pastor Dave and, and uh, uh, Pastor Michael and with, with uh, Pastor Anthony as well too. And, uh, you know, they're asking me some different questions and some of the historical questions. And this is a question that I do get even from a lot of other people as well. What, what's your biggest regrets of your time at Epicos? Okay, so that was one that kind of worked its way in. But I, I get asked that question uh, all the time. I, I know that what you're thinking is, you know, that my biggest regret is, you know, when we did the reality TV show, It Takes a Church. Um, it wasn't that. It wasn't that. That's number three, okay? Uh, number one, number one biggest uh, regret, and, and I, didn't just, I didn't just prepare this for, for this weekend. I have shared this over the last five years, and, and this is, is real. Um, I regret not calling people to consider full-time ministry as a pastor or staff, as a, as a missionary, or to be part of a church planting team or to be a, a, a church planner. And not everyone, that's not for everyone. Uh, there's lots of you who will remain being part of church planting, but you'll still have a full-time job, uh, you know, and, and serving in the church in some other way. Uh, and Dave's going to talk about this. Part of this is just a primer because next week Dave's going to even give some specific ways in which for some of you, you can take that next step on mission. But being back here, even, you know, this week and kind of reminiscing and, you know, walking through the different buildings and, um, you know, seeing different things that have changed like a lowercase e to a capital E, we serve a God of grace. I forgive you. Um, anyways, uh, seeing some of those changes. Um, but being back here, it can be really easy uh, to talk about the, the glory days. Oh, remember that? It's like we were in the living rooms and uh, we didn't know what we were doing. And it was, it, was, it was a miracle to see this church birth and continue to like grow and multiply. Let's just, do you remember that? Can I tell you something? You are part of a miracle, but the glory days, the good old days, are actually ahead. I absolutely believe, as I was, you know, sharing at this campus and preparing this sermon and stuff, that especially coming out of pandemic where you are right now and just different things changing and shifting, that God has some stuff that is still ahead of this church to come to a place where even supernaturally we see this demonstration of God working individually in your lives and not only individually, but as you come together. And so understand that, yes, if you're a follower of Christ, then you're also involved in church planting. You're a part of a miracle as a local church is established and rooted and multiplies out. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. We, we thank you for the extreme amount of grace that you've had 
on each and every one of us. I want to pray specifically, if there's even just one person that's listening to this and they realize that they don't have a relationship with you, that, that right now they're like, yeah, that's, that's me. That describes me. I'm, 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 I'm broken. I'm in need of a Savior. That right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you not only convict them, but God, that you would lavish your love upon them. That in their, their own words, that they would even just cry out to you and say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you came, that you lived a perfect life, that you died a brutal death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And that while I don't deserve it, I just ask for your grace and for your forgiveness. Come into my life. Come into my heart. I surrender to you. And God, that your Holy Spirit would dwell inside of them, seal them until the day of redemption. God, that they would become your new miracle, your new sign and wonder within the church. That you would call them to serve you. And Lord, for the rest of us, that we would take seriously our call that we wouldn't become complacent we pray for that one person that has come to mind that you would open up opportunity that we'd have spiritual conversation and that maybe just maybe one day they too would say yes to you in jesus name amen